That's not fair. Did you ever hear that? As a parent, some of you, did you ever, your kids ever say that? That's not fair. That's not fair. They got a bigger piece than I got. That's not fair. They got to go first. That's not fair. They got more than I got. That's not fair. You let them do that and I never got to do that. That's not fair. Of course, none of us as adults ever say anything like that, right? That's not fair. That's not fair that they got that promotion. It's all political. It's about who you know. That's not fair. It's not fair that I lost my job. It's not fair that that I'm giving so much more in this relationship than they're giving. That's not fair. It's not fair that they get to take those trips. They get those opportunities. Why don't we ever get any of those breaks? Why don't we ever get any of those opportunities? That's not fair. We all struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with the fact that life doesn't always seem fair. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Sometimes it seems the exact opposite. It seems unjust and unfair. And we can all point to examples, usually of folks that maybe we feel like are getting more, we're getting less, they're getting the best end, we're getting the short end of the process. But even as we wrestle with that, I think it would be fair for us to at least admit that across the world this morning, there are folks that maybe look at you and I, and even though it's on a, a spring forward Sunday and we feel like I got cheated out of an hour's sleep or whatever, there are folks looking at us right now and saying, it's not fair. It's not fair that they get to come and worship in freedom. It's not fair that they have that comfort. It's not fair that they have all of the opportunities that they have. That's not fair. We all wrestle with questions of fairness. And as we've been moving forward toward Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we've been trying to take some time to look at some of the characters of the crucifixion and some of the things that maybe we can learn out of that. We've spent some time looking at what some might be called supporting actors, if you are speaking in Oscar terms, right? Uh, Judas and Pilate along the way. But I want us to turn our attention this morning to the main actor, and that's Jesus. And I don't want us this morning to think about so much the cross as some of the moments before the cross, and particularly the the, the trial of Jesus, and what just observing how Jesus walked through that process teaches us about how to handle the times when life is unfair and unjust. The trial of Jesus has been called by by one uh, person with a law background as the darkest day in the history of jurisprudence. That when you when you look at the law that was at operative in that day, they blew through so much of that law to just get Jesus where they wanted to get him. And so what, what I want us to do, I want us to look, uh, draw on some of the gospel accounts, primarily Matthew's gospel, but as we've been doing in this series, we, we get a fuller picture when we draw in some of the, the, the writings from some of the other gospels as well. And I want us to understand 
at least part of the, the background of the trial of Jesus that may help us to appreciate the lessons that he can teach us. What we're going to be focusing on this morning is kind of the, the Jewish portion of the trial of Jesus, if you will. This is, this is before he ever got to the Roman authorities and Pontius Pilate and all this. All of this we're going to look at in these brief moments took place before they even got him under Roman rule. This is kind of the Jewish portion of the trial. We can think about it in three stages or three scenes, if you will. The first scene wasn't even before the official high priest. It was before uh, a guy named Annas. John's gospel gives us some insight into that. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So this is the, after the betrayal of Judas. They have arrested bound Jesus, and now these trials begin to unfold. First, they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, now what's going on in this first scene? Annas was, was the high priest from A.D. 6 to 15. He's been disposed. He's been displaced. He no longer has that, that official capacity, and yet he still has tremendous power. He is the father-in-law of the guy who is currently the high priest uh, when Jesus is uh, tried. So he's kind of the power behind the throne. He's the one pulling the levers, if you will. Before they had even gotten to this point, before even the arrest of Jesus, the verdict had already been determined. I mean, they had already decided to kill Jesus. You go back and read the Gospels, they were just looking for a way to make it happen. They were looking for the mechanisms to make it happen. But they had already pronounced him guilty and determined what the verdict would be that he deserved to die. So all this is going on. So they're looking for ways, how can we make that happen? They're looking to prove that Jesus, his disciples, the things that he's teaching, his doctrine, that they were anti-Rome. They didn't have the authority because of Roman control of that area to exercise capital punishment. So they, they were trying to figure out a way they could kind of declare him guilty under Jewish law, but also come up with a way that would deserve capital punishment under Roman law. So all of this is unfolding in this first part. Jesus is inside and outside Peter is denying Christ. And we won't take the time to look at that in, in any detail this morning, but you can read about it there in Matthew 26 and other uh, places there in the Gospels. But Peter's denying Christ. But, but here is Jesus. Jesus is protecting Peter. Jesus protected his disciples even as he was providing for all of us that night. Now, I do want you to, to see something just even in this first scene because if you're just looking at it from a sheerly human perspective, you would think, man, this thing is, this thing is totally out of control. I mean, the, 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 these, these leaders, Annas and Caiaphas and all these guys, I mean, they're the ones in control. They've got Jesus tied up. They're setting the agenda. They're moving him from one place to the other. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus actually was the one who was totally free and totally in control. He was bound physically, but he was totally free to be obedient to God, to fulfill what God had sent him to do. He was absolutely in control. Can I just take a little side trip here, by the way? 
We're, we're in the midst, I, you probably have heard, we're in the midst of a presidential election this year, right? Oh my goodness, I, I just, I am worn out already and this thing's got to go to November, right? I mean, there's all this, all this stuff. And please hear me, it is incredibly important. It is very, very important. And I, I urge you, encourage you, be informed, be involved, engage in the process. It's one of the privileges we have of living in this country. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's important, but it's not most important to me. I mean, it's important because the president, the Supreme Court, just all these things, it's important for so many reasons. But here, here's, here's just where I have found great encouragement. In the end, it's not about who's president, whether it's a donkey or an elephant or a cuckoo bird or whatever it is, you know, because Jesus is still king, all right? He's still king. And, and presidents come and go and congresses come and go and companies rise and fall and countries rise and fall. But he is still in control. He is still in control. And so here he is. Jesus looks like he's bound, but he's actually the one who's free. He's actually the one in control. So that's kind of scene one, this, this first stage of the trial, this first pronouncement of guilt under Annas, who really doesn't have any official power, but he has an awful lot of unofficial power. Then there's scene two. Scene two is they, they take him from Annas and they take him over to Caiaphas, who is the high priest of the day. And that's where we want to just tune back into Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 26. I want to just pick up reading in verse 57 and encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's word. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, here is this highly charged scene. Again, it's in the middle of the night. Jesus is brought before Caiaphas and kind of a select group of folks. This is still not really the official legal trial at this point. But it, it tells us something about how unfair and, and unjust this whole process was. According to later Jewish rabbinical writings in the Old Testament scriptures, there are just many things that they just pushed aside. They blew past in this rush to judgment with Jesus. First of all, according to their tradition and laws, capital cases could not be tried at night or during festivals. It had to be 
in the open. It had to be in the daylight. It had to be with with, uh, many, many opportunities for witness. They did all of this under the cover of darkness. Capital cases required two consecutive days before a verdict could be rendered. They were going to render this verdict in just a few moments. They weren't going to spend a couple of days doing this. According to those traditions and laws, the accused should have been permitted a counsel for his defense. No counsel was offered as a part of this process. In capital cases particularly, two witnesses were required to confirm the offense. And there were harsh penalties for false witnesses. You can see some of the, the, the Old Testament references there. But here they bring in this, this slew of false witnesses, and they can't even get their story straight, right? They, they can't even, even get the story together. Uh, they finally find two that agree something about, about the temple itself. Contrary to all Jewish and, and Roman law, they took it upon themselves to punish the accused. So instead of like official people carrying out the punishment, they're already beginning to beat him and slap him around and spit in his face and all of these things. That They just ignore all of these things because they have already determined what it is they want to do and are going to do to Jesus. Blow past all the laws of, of, and rules of justice in order to accomplish their intended end. Scene one was before Annas. Scene two was this this mockery of a trial and an examination before Caiaphas. And then, as morning is breaking, we have scene three. Scene three in the Jewish part of that trial, and that's Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Luke's gospel talks about it. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their Council. Matthew's gospel in the first couple of verses uh, in chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And, and so all this stuff that's been going on on the cover of darkness, it, it's all been decided, but it's not really official. And so they, they bring the, the official council together early in the morning, and they do that so that they can give the proceedings some air of legality. I mean, it's already been decided. It's already been, the, the sentence has been passed, but they, they kind of bring this group together in the daylight so that they could have, like somebody could record the minutes, right? Somebody could say this, we're, we're going to give this some air of legality, of legitimacy along the way. The Jewish leaders did not have the power to impose the death penalty because of Roman rule and Roman law. So they ended up having to take Jesus to Pilate. And we looked uh, at some of the portion of that that Roman trial last week. But they've, they've pronounced sentence. They've been beating on him and doing all of these things to him. But to make this capital case punishable, they have to get him to Pilate. They have to take him there. Now, that, that's kind of the scenes. Scene one, scene two, and scene three. Scene one and two at night, scene three early in the morning, and that, then they're taking him off to Pilate. And in the middle of all that, we're going to pause and say, what can we learn? What can we learn from the way that Jesus conducted himself in the midst of this this mockery of a trial that night in those few hours that may help us to respond in a a God-honoring way when life is unfair? 
And the first thing to, to move in that direction is just to recognize something. And that is to recognize the reality, the reality of difficulties, the reality of injustices in a sin-scarred world. That, that, is, that is the reality. Since the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that's true. That's true of every one of our lives. That's true of the world in which we live. Jesus had been trying to teach his disciples this all along the way. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Some of your translations will say, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That living in a world that is distorted by sin, we are not always going to get justice this side of eternity. We're not always going to experience life fair. We're all going to at times be victims and perhaps even perpetrators of injustice or unfairness. There are things that are going to come into our lives that just don't seem fair. And there's a part of us that thinks, well, wait a minute, surely, surely if, if I'm walking with God, surely if I'm being obedient to God, surely if I'm, I'm trying to walk in God-honoring, God-pleasing ways, then, then I'll have a little more justice. Then I, I, I won't be subject to so much unfairness. And actually, Paul wrote to his mentee, he wrote to the one he was mentoring, Timothy, the exact opposite. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not fair. That's not right. But it's reality. It's reality. And some of you have experienced that. You have experienced unfair treatment. Not because of an ungodly walk, but because you have tried to walk in God-honoring ways. And that has brought some difficulties into your life, personally, relationally, maybe in your career trajectory. It has impacted you along the way. There are things that are just unfair. People treat each other unjustly sometimes horrifically. There is unwelcome and unannounced death and disease. There are relational breakups and blow-ups that you didn't desire and didn't see coming. There are folks that you felt like you would count on and they have betrayed you. Recognize that you're not the only one. Recognize that that's reality in a sin-scarred world. Can, can I just encourage you? When we look for this world to be paradise, we're always going to be disappointed. When you, if I just get this relationship, if I just get this job, if I just get this position, then, then it will be all right. Then everything will be right with the world. Then this will be paradise. This world scarred by sin is not paradise. 
Now, there is a world coming where there will be no sickness and no disease and no sorrow and no tears. That is paradise. This world in its present state is not paradise. And we have to recognize that reality. It is fundamental to learning how to live with the reality of injustice, injustice and unfairness. Recognize the reality of difficulties and injustices in a sin-scarred world. Second thing is to focus on your God-given purpose. To focus on your God-given purpose. Here's in the midst of all these false accusations, all these things being hurled at Jesus, all this, this unfair arrest, this betrayal of a friend, all this is going on. But, but Jesus focuses on his God-given purpose. He knew why he was there. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Matthew's Gospel. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what can happen to us. Sometimes when life's not fair, sometimes when, when, when it doesn't seem like we're getting justice, sometimes our, our focus shifts Our focus shifts to, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to make sure that everybody hears and recognizes how unfairly I've been treated, how, how, how unjust this situation is. And we begin to invest so much energy there that we get distracted. We get dissuaded from what God has called us to do. What God has purposed for our lives. And, and, and I, I, have seen, I have seen folks that have had just terribly unfair things happen to them. And yet they have navigated through that with a strength and a peace because they continue to remember they live in a sin-scarred world and God has a purpose And the purpose wasn't just to to always settle the score this side of eternity. I've seen other folks, and you've seen them too, that that something unfair or unjust happens in their life. And it it just takes their whole life off course. And and they they invest so much attention and so much energy in in trying to to, to make sure that everybody realizes how unfair this is or are focusing so much on the injustice of it all that that, that they miss. They miss the larger purpose. They They get distracted from the main things that God has called them to be about. Jesus didn't spend that whole night fighting back and talking back. He didn't spend the whole night trying to even the score. He continued to focus on his God-given purpose, seeking to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't let the injustices and the unfairness of life distract you from the primary things, the primary roles that God has for you in your life. Focus on your God-given purpose. The third thing that we see Jesus do that is helpful and instructive for us is realize there's a time to remain silent. There's a time to remain 
silent. Go, go back with me, if you would, to Matthew's gospel, that 26th chapter. All these f- accusations are flying in the air. Verse 60 says, there were many false witnesses that came forward. Verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And then verse 63 opens, but Jesus remained silent. He didn't talk back. He didn't fight back. He didn't answer every false accusation. He remained silent. Interestingly enough, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before this night, had foretold that the Messiah would do just that. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Hear me? There are times where you can't answer every critic. You can't, you, you can't spend all of your time trying to, to get your point across or your perspective or make sure that it's a fair and balanced debate. You, you can't spend your whole life there. Sometimes you just need the wisdom of God to say, God, is this one of those times? And I just need to shut up and keep doing what you call me to do, to remain silent. It's been an old piece of homespun wisdom that has been so helpful to me through the years. And it goes back to a, maybe it's more of a country saying, I don't know, but it's, it's, if you can imagine a full moon out in the country, full moon shining and a bunch of the dogs around, and the dogs are just barking at the moon. And old bright moon's hanging up there and it's shining and the dogs are howling and they're barking away. And the homespun wisdom goes like this, you know, what's the moon do when all the dogs are yapping and barking? I'll tell you what it doesn't do. It doesn't leave its place in the sky, and it doesn't quit shining. It just stays put, and it keeps on shining. And there are times where that is what you have to do. In the face of unfairness, in the face of of injustice, you have to say, I'm going to keep shining. I'm going to stay right where God has called me to stay. I'm going to keep reflecting his light off of my life into the lives of other people. There's going to be people howling. There's going to be people barking. I'm not going to try to make them all be quiet. I'm not going to try to answer every yelp or every bark or every yip. I'm just going to stay put, and I'm going to keep shining. Sometimes that's what you have to do. Because if you spend so much energy answering every critic, answering every critique, you will, you will not shine. You will not be and do what God has called you to be and do. Sometimes you just got to let the dogs bark. You stay put and you keep shining. But I want you to notice what else Jesus did. It's not contradictory. I think it's complimentary. There are times you got to just remain silent. Let the dogs bark. But fourthly, realize there's also a time to speak truth. There is a time when you have to speak truth. So Jesus makes that determination. Let's go back to the narrative in Matthew 26. He remained silent 
But then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Here is the most fundamental truth of all. Jesus, who are you? And in this critical moment, Jesus will not remain silent. Because this is such a fundamental truth, he will speak to it. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It is such a fundamental question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Forget all of this talk about tearing down the temple and you said this and you said this and all the false testimony. I'm not going to give any energy to that. But on this fundamental truth, I will not be silent. I will speak. The author of Ecclesiastes reminds us there is a time to keep silence and there is a time to speak. And we need God's wisdom. We need spirit-inspired discernment to know. Is this a moment when I just let dogs bark? Or is this such a fundamental truth that it has to be answered? That it has to be addressed? There are times in the face of injustice. There are times in the face of unfairness where you and I are required to use our voice. It may be that God is going to have you facing this this situation that is unfair and unjust, and he's going to say, I want you to be a voice for those who have no voice. I want you to speak truth because you have a platform that some other folks don't have and you need to speak because they can't, be, they can't speak in a way that's going to be heard. You have to raise your voice. Maybe not even so much for yourself, but for others. There are times when we, you and I need to speak because there are times when somebody's got to address those fundamental truths. You can't let some of those lies go continually unchecked fundamental truth has to intersect with them. There are times where somebody has to speak truth. Somebody has to draw a boundary line and say, enough of this bullying. Enough of this abuse. Sometimes you have to speak truth enough to say, there's a boundary line here that we're going to have to reinforce because this is not working. This is not healthy. This is not healthy for you. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for the organization, whatever it might be. So you have to speak truth. Sometimes you remain silent, as Jesus did. Sometimes, particularly around a core fundamental issue of truth, you have to speak. You have to speak the truth. You need God's wisdom to determine the two. Two more lessons I want us to see out of this example of Jesus. The fifth lesson is to rely. To rely on the fact that even the most tragic of circumstances can be used to accomplish God's sovereign purposes. Even that which seems most unfair, most unjust, that which seems even horrifically tragic, God can still use that. God will use that to accomplish his sovereign purposes. 
In the face of tragic circumstances, in the face of life being unfair and unjust, many have found encouragement and strength in the promise of Romans 8, 28. And we know, not we hope, not we wish, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. When we stay in alignment with God's calling and God's purpose, when we stay in, in, in reliance upon his love, we can rely on the fact that he is at work in all things, even the most tragic of circumstances. God was at work right here in the middle of this injustice, right here in the middle of all that seemed unfair, the way that Jesus was being mistreated. God was accomplishing his sovereign purposes in the midst of it. And when you find yourself in the middle of a time that seems unfair and unjust, just remember, remember that God is still involved. Remember that God is still working his sovereign purposes out. One of my favorite biblical examples of this is in the first book of the Bible, toward the end of the book of Genesis. Many of you are familiar with the the story of the narrative of a guy named Joseph. And you can say Joseph maybe had some wisdom issues of sharing some of his God-given visions and dreams with his family at the wrong time in the wrong way, and, and that might be a fair critique. But in the end, he was not treated fairly. In the end, he experienced great injustice. His brothers, out of envy, out of, out of perhaps a mixture of hatred, all of those things, that they see an opportunity. They actually, some of them even wanted to kill him, but they, they kind of compromised and ended up selling him into slavery. And then they, they go and they tell their own father this, this horrific tale that their brother's been killed by an animal. I mean, that's not fair. That's not right. And so Joseph is sold into slavery in a foreign land, and he doesn't even speak the language. He doesn't know the customs, all these things, but he's trying to make the best out of a bad situation. And so he serves and serves well as the slave in this household. And what does he get for his good attitude? What does he get for his good service? The, the, the mistress of the household, the, the wife of the owner, accuses him of something he didn't do. In fact, it's something he wouldn't do. And out of her anger, out of, out of her feeling scorned, she makes up this story and lands him in prison. And there in prison, he's still trying to make the best of a bad situation. There's a couple guys, and he speaks in, helps them understand a vision that God gave them. And they, they, give, they just say, hey, listen, we're not going to forget you. you know, we're going to take care of you. You took care of us. One of them gets released, just like Joseph said forgets all about Joseph, just leaves him hanging in prison for years. Now, if you don't know the end of the story, you may be reading this at this point, and you may be thinking, this guy, this guy, he's, he's, he doesn't get any breaks at all. And then you may read this statement that occurs again and again in the narrative, and it may make you even question. It says something like, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. And at this point, if you don't know the end of the story, you might be thinking, a lot of good that's doing him. I mean, with friends like that, right? Who needs enemies? I mean, the Lord is with him. Big deal. He gets sold into slavery. He gets falsely accused and imprisoned. 
Somebody should be taking care of him and getting him out, and they leave him rotten in the cell. The Lord was with Joseph. It doesn't seem to help. And maybe you get there. God, I keep reading that you're with me, that you're for me. But it doesn't seem to help. Life still seems terribly unfair and unjust. Then you come to the end of the story. And Joseph suddenly by God's work, moves from the prison to the palace. He moves from a place of very limited power and influence to almost unlimited power and influence. And in those moments, God, who has been shaping Joseph's life and shaping Joseph's character in the slavery and in the imprisonment and all these things, now entrust him with this position where he will be instrumental in saving perhaps millions of life through a food program, including his own family, including the Hebrew nation that God is going to work through, that God is ultimately going to bring Jesus Christ through. And they come toward the end, and his family is there, and his father dies. And his brothers, thinking like maybe many of us think, think we're in trouble now. We're in trouble because he's been nice to us because daddy's been alive. But now, now the hammer's going to fall. Now he's going to bring justice to bear. Now he's going to use his power to pay us back for treating him so unfairly. But Joseph doesn't. Because Joseph recognizes the hand of God. And Joseph assures them, listen, you meant it for evil. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. You meant it for evil. It was unfair. It was not just. There was nothing right about it. But God, but God meant it for good. God used it in a way that's going to bring about a rescuing millions of people. God can work even in the most tragic of circumstances to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Which brings us to the sixth lesson And that is to trust. To trust in God's wisdom, God's love, and God's power. Even as you rely on the fact, this isn't right, this isn't fair, it's not just. I'm not going to see justice, I'm not going to see fairness this side of eternity, but God, I still choose to trust you. I choose to rely on your wisdom, your love, and your power. It is a choice that I can make. I love the way that Peter talked about it. Remember Peter? Peter, who's out in the courtyard denying Jesus three times. Years later, he would look back at that night. He would look back at how Jesus conducted himself in those moments. And he would write these words. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued, here's the great phrase, entrusting himself to him who judges 
justly. <laughs> That's what he did. He didn't, he, he, he didn't revile back. He didn't, he didn't bring a lawsuit. He didn't do all that. He, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's been said that there are times when it's easier to obey God than it is to trust him. And I know every step of obedience involves trusting him, but I think I know what the writer meant. See, there are times when obedience, we, we just, at least we feel like we're doing something, right? I'm taking this step. I'm taking this action. I'm, I'm doing something. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it empowered by God and trusting in God, but at least I'm doing something. But there are times in our lives when God calls us, there is nothing else for you to do. You have done everything I have called you to do. Everything that you are capable of doing. Now the question is, will you trust me? Will you trust me with what you can't control? Will you trust me beyond what you can do? Will you trust me? Sometimes it's easier to obey God than to trust him. In the end... And we come to these moments in our life, and we're all going to experience them. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. You're either going to lean on yourself, or you're going to lean on God. If you find yourself more and more relying on yourself, your ability to get justice, your ability to make things fair, the result is inevitable anxiety. Because you can't. You can't fix everything. You can't undo every wrong. You can't make everything fair and just and right this side of eternity. And if you keep just leaning on yourself, you're going to have great angst and anxiety because of what you can't do and what you can't control. The other option is to rest in God. Rely on myself or rest in God. And when I choose to rest in God, the outcome is peace. Doesn't mean that everything gets fixed this moment. It doesn't mean that immediately in this life that every lack of justice is fixed or every unfairness is squared up. But it means I trust Him. I trust his sovereignty. I trust his wisdom. I trust his power and his love. And when I do, I experience his peace that surpasses all understanding. How could Jesus walk through what he walked through? Because he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly would you let me pray for you please father I just find such encouragement right now knowing that you know us you know everything about us father that you not only know us but you know our circumstances you know our situation you know what it is we're dealing with 
Father, you know where life has been unfair. You know where we have experienced a lack of justice. And Father, you know what it is that you're doing in the middle of that, what you're doing in the middle of the mess. And so, Father, I just, I pray right now, I pray for myself, I, I pray for every person in this room. Father, would you just, would you graciously just take these moments and speak to us anew and afresh? Some of us need encouragement today. Some of us need perspective. Some of us need to leave behind some hurt, pain, just surrender it to you. Some of us need to quit fighting battles and return to our purpose. Some of us need some courage to speak up and not be silent. As you just continue to sit before the Lord, we intentionally carve out just a few moments at the end of our service, not to rush, but to just sit before the Lord. What is it that he may be prompting in you as you respond to his word today? We have some places to get you started under on your note-taking guide under that section called Making It Personal. And maybe part of that personal discovery is just being honest. How do I usually respond? And what's my typical response when life's not fair, when it's not just? What do I typically do? And what might Christ be trying to grow in me? What qualities of Christ-likeness might He be trying to develop in me, even through trial in my life right now. Maybe just for some of us in the room, this moment is just about identifying, getting very specific where I need to trust God, where I need to trust His wisdom, His power, His love, His sovereign control. Can you name that place, that circumstance, that situation, that relationship today. Will you just tell him, God, I'm going to choose to rely on you. I'm going to choose to trust in you. We can't talk about trusting Christ. We can't talk about the trial that led to the crucifixion and the resurrection without asking the the foundational question, and that is, how have I personally responded to God, to his perfect provision for me in Jesus Christ, the life he lived, the death he died, his burial, his resurrection? Have I responded to that in trust, turning from sin, turning from self and repentance and turning to him in faith? Before you leave this room, our, our prayer week by week Our urging for you is don't leave this room without settling your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Let today be the day that you turn to him. In just a few moments, we're going to end our service. And as we do, 
I'm just going to ask you just to be as specific as you can. What is my next step? And maybe if you still have a Connect card, you may want to write something on the back and say, Pastor Jeff, would you pray for me in this? Pray for me as I trust God in this. Pray for me as I speak up in this or as I remain silent in this. You can drop that in some of the holders on the wall on the way out. But for some of you here, before you leave this room, your next step spiritually includes a physical step to the connect room in the back of our worship space. There's a team of folks that's there. They're there right now. They're going to be available to you throughout the remainder of our service. They're going to hang out there right after our service. Please, please go by. If you just need somebody to pray with you about something, maybe you just find yourself in the middle of a circumstance or a situation that is unjust and unfair, and you just need somebody to pray with you today, that's what this team will be delighted to do. Maybe you have some questions about what it means to become a follower of Christ through repentance and faith. This team can help point you to Jesus Christ. Maybe today is about going public with your faith in baptism or formally uniting with this fellowship to do life together in community here. This team can help you with all of that. That's the next place for you to go. That's the next step for you to take. As we prepare to step out of this room and step into the circumstances and situations.